Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when, of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Our listeners might remember today's guest from season one, Kimberly Chrisman Campbell uh, joins us again. She was one of our very first guests on the show. She wrote this incredible book, Fashion Victims, Dress at the Court of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. And she came on last season to talk about the famed Queen's dressmaker, Rose Bertin. But today she joins us to talk about her new book, which is called Worn on This Day. And we say this all the time on Dressed, but what we wear matters in this book provides you with a daily dose of why. So Cass, I think this might be my new personal almanac. (laughs) Mine too. I actually think it's all fashion history lovers' new almanac. (laughs) (laughs) For instance, today's episode is airing on November 12th. Well, did you know that on today in 1859, Jules Leotard performed his first flying trapeze act at the Cirque Napoleon in Paris. And dress listeners might recognize that name because Leotard's name became associated with the figure-hugging bodysuit garment that he wore while flying through the air. And we've also already done an episode about this. Yep, there's so many fascinating events in this book. And some you and I are probably familiar with, but there were so many more that I just had never heard of. And it's an incredible book, and we are so excited to have Kimberly back with us today. Welcome, Kimberly. Kimberly, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome back to Dressed. Thank you, Cassidy. We are excited to have you here today to talk about your new book, Worn on This Day, The Clothes That Made History, just published on November 5th. And actually, this is not a typical fashion history book. Can you please tell us about it and what inspired you to take this unique approach? Well, you're right. It is a different kind of fashion history book, a different kind of history book. Most history books are told in chronological order. There's a good reason for that, but I chose to do something different. This book jumps around in time going day by day from January 1st to December 31st, but covering the years 79 AD to the present, or at least uh, up to 2018. So it's not your typical timeline of changing hemlines and hairstyles, but fashion also evolves through the seasons. Uh, We have Easter bonnets and June brides, uh, 4th of July flags, Halloween costumes, ugly Christmas sweaters, (laughs) and then there are annual events like the Oscars or the Met Gala, the Kentucky Derby, uh, and the Olympics. And they all happen at the same time, uh, roughly year after year or every few years, and they make their own highly anticipated fashion statements. And your book is essentially 365 days of the clothing we've worn throughout history, right? That's right. So I have to know, how did you go about sourcing your material? It's by date, so January 1st through December 31st. And with all of history at your disposal, this could have been no small order. (laughs) Well, this book started as a Twitter feed that I was doing occasionally. And then I started thinking, could I do this every day? And once I started doing that, I thought, could this be a book? And I didn't really have all the pieces in place at that point, but I had enough ideas of things that had a date connected to them uh, that I 
thought I could probably do it. And as a curator, I've always really been fascinated by the reasons clothes survive and end up in museum collections. And it's never for the reasons that you want or or hope. Um, the museum pieces are not the most representative, most perfectly preserved expression of what everybody was wearing or aspiring to wear in a given place and time. Uh, clothes survive for all kinds of reasons. And if you go through things in your closet that have maybe been there for three or four or five years, they're not your most fashionable outfits. They're things with sentimental value. Uh, they're things that are maybe timeless rather than trendy, or sometimes they're things that you didn't actually wear very much and you just kept because, you know, you were going to lose that extra 10 pounds, or maybe the fashions changed so quickly that it, it wasn't desirable anymore. And that's really true of museum collections too. We, we, can't just assume that everything that has been saved has been saved because it was fashionable or even because it was worn. But I've found that when things survive with a specific date attached to them, there's usually a very good story behind it. And of course, that's very rare. Most times we don't even know who made it or who wore it or even, you know, within a few years um, of when it was worn, uh, we, we kind of consider ourselves lucky if we can date it that narrowly. But if something's got a specific date on it, and I, I knew of some great pieces that did when I started this project, they're, they're really worth looking into in, in more detail. Yeah, and you touched on it a bit, but I, I really love how inherent in, in this book is the power and meaning of clothing. You know, clothing is really this common possession and getting dressed is really this common act that billions of people throughout history and today can share. And I love what you wrote in the introduction about clothing. You called it wearable time capsules that, quote, transcend fashion to make up the very fabric of history. So uh, what an incredible endeavor. And our dress listeners are going to have to get their hands on it immediately. <laughs> well, it's not just for dress historians, though. I mean, these books tell us a lot about our, our shared history, our shared culture. You know, I've worked in lots of different kinds of museums. I've, I've curated collections of you know, stuff boxes and sculptures. And those are things that most people don't have in their houses. Um, we all have clothes. Uh, we are all experts to some extent on what clothing is, what it might feel like to wear it. Um, even if it's just to say, oh, I would never wear that or isn't that hideous. Uh, we can all look at clothing from a place of experience and a place of expertise. Yes, absolutely agree. And this approach that you took allowed for some pretty incredible and unexpected juxtapositions, I have to say, of events that might not otherwise have been connected um, or compared. So was there anything in particular that surprised you once you started filling in the dates? There were some really interesting coincidences. Uh, for example, Wallace Simpson's wedding gown was worn uh, just a few days and, you know, in calendar days apart from Queen Elizabeth's coronation gown. Um, of course, the coronation would not have happened if Wallace Simpson had not married the Duke of Windsor. So that was an interesting opportunity to put those kind of on the same page. The same thing with Al Capone and OJ. Uh, they were both put on trial uh, within you know, the same month of the year and convicted um, or acquitted in OJ's case. And both of these were called the trial of the century, even though they were both in the same century. And, and clothing play, played a big role in not just the action in the courtroom, but the media coverage of both of those very high-profile trials. Right. And there, there are so many thought-provoking arrangements. For instance, on 
September 2nd, 1846, you have the four-year-old Prince of Wales and future King of England who puts on his sailor suit on board the royal yacht, much to the delight of his mother, Queen Victoria. And this suit had been made, and we've talked about this actually in a past episode of Fashion History Mystery about how the suit had been made by the yacht Sailor Taylor, I love saying that, as a mirror of the sailor uniform. (laughs) And it sparked this trend for children's sailor ensembles. And then as you have in the book on September 3rd, 1838, Frederick Douglass escaped slavery disguised as a sailor. I mean, wow. Yeah, that's another really good parallel, isn't it? Uh, there's, there's a lot of World War II material as well, and it all sort of ties together in interesting ways, um, telling you know, the different stories of the soldiers and the refugees and the, the you know, the women who embraced yours and you look. Yeah, I mean, this book is really jam-packed with so many amazing tidbits of information on everything from the clothing worn by pioneering male and female athletes to royal coronations from Hawaii to England. I mean, you discuss war, politics, crime, menswear, weddings, lunar space landing. It's all there. (laughs) There's something for everyone. Yeah, it's it's so fun and so, so incredibly insightful. And now that I've read it all, I certainly noticed some concurrent themes running throughout the book. Was that your intention or was that something that kind of revealed itself to you throughout the process? Well, I I had a sort of an outline and then I filled in the pieces and I did try to make those connections very obliquely. I mean, for a long time, I really wanted to write a book about about the way fashion factors into history. Not so much how fashion itself changes, but how garments are so totemic. And, you know, it's impossible to think of, for example, JFK's assassination without thinking of the pink Chanel suit. And these, these images are kind of burned into our collective visual memory. And I realized I couldn't really tell that story. I kind of had to show it by highlighting these amazing pieces, um, many of which are instantly recognizable to readers and many that are completely obscure, maybe never even uh, been, been published or researched before, but that tell the same kind of stories. Right. And that's something that I love so much about this book is really learning things that I'd never come across before. One of the themes throughout the book is sports. And you highlight a lot of firsts in this regard. You have the first time the Masters green jacket was awarded. You know, even the first time a baseball catcher wore shin guards. But my favorite stories, uh, and my favorite stories in general, I'm a huge fan of kind of those sports movies where athletes overcome <laughs> adversity. <laughs> and you have tons of those those stories throughout the book. And yes, trust listeners, this directly relates to what these people are wearing. So um, Kimberly, can you tell us specifically about the story of Jim Thorpe? Who was he and what happened to him on July 14th, 1912? Boy, Cassie, has anybody made a movie about Jim Thorpe? Because this, this is a right? Blockbuster waiting to happen. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, he is uh, such a fascinating guy, and the clothing is so important to his story. Uh, Jim Thorpe was called the greatest athlete that ever lived. He he could do it all. He was a football player. He was a baseball player, and he won the gold medal in the um, Olympic pentathlon and decathlon at the nineteen twelve Olympics in Sweden. He did this having come from a really um, horrible background. He was a Sac and Fox Indian who'd grown up in the Oklahoma Territory. Um, Oklahoma wasn't even a state when he was born. Like like many uh, Native American children, he was sent to a government-run boarding school, sort of removed from his family. But the coach at that school was Pop Warner, you know, the legendary football coach. And he saw his potential and really turned him into as the Queen of Sweden declared him, the the greatest athlete that ever lived. Unfortunately, on the morning of the decathlon, his 
cleats were stolen. Uh, he woke up and, and found that uh, for the second day of the events, he had no shoes. He was able to find two mismatched cleats in a trash can, but they were different sizes. So he put a bunch of extra socks on one foot and he wore mismatched shoes and he still won the whole thing by a huge <laughs> margin of victory. Uh, and, and there's a picture of him standing there in his mismatched shoes with different socks and, you know, clearly wearing more socks on one foot. So it, it, it makes it already incredible achievement that much more impressive. Yeah, what an incredible, incredible story. Menswear is actually definitely a recurring topic throughout this book. And you have everything from Barack Obama's surprisingly controversial decision to wear a tan suit <laughs> to a press conference. That was on August 28, 2014. Um, and then you have Peter the Great's beard tax imposed on his subjects on September 5th, 1698. Can you tell us more about this beard tax and perhaps share with us any other favorite menswear-related events you may have from the book? Yes, well, I added that that beard tax thing just sort of as a really brief snippet just kind of at the last minute because I thought it was so fun. And of course, I couldn't use a picture for everything in this book like I could on Twitter. So I, I had to find something that didn't need a picture. And of course, we don't have a picture of a man wearing a beard on that particular day. They didn't have cameras in '98, <laughs> uh, But we know that it must have happened because here he is taxing these poor men wearing their beards. Uh, the, the 18th century uh, in general is not, not kind to men's facial hair, but facial hair does play a big part of this book. Charles Dickens was extremely proud of his facial hair and he wrote letters about it. And there's a wonderful quote from him about his mustache and how well it's coming along. Uh, so <laughs> men, men's facial hair uh, comes, comes up again and again in this book because hair is, of course, a part of dress. I tried to fit as many men as possible into this book. I mean, I, I'm not a menswear expert, but I, I live with men and I, I love men. And I, I have some wonderful portraits and photos of men wearing clothes that, that may surprise you. Uh, of course, women did not have all the fun in the past. Um, and men got to dress up too. Uh, there's There are wonderful uniforms, uh, many of them with bullet holes or uh, cannonballs through them. Um, unfortunately, a lot of things do survive because someone died while wearing them or almost died while wearing them, uh, which is a whole different and very interesting story. And um, these things are preserved as relics. I want to go back to uh, sportswear too. Uh, because there's there's so much athletic gear in this book, and I want to emphasize that I am not an athlete, and I really don't follow any sports except ice hockey. Uh, but we know that athletic clothing often predicts fashion trends, both in its design and in their high-tech materials. So that was a really important thing to have in the book, and, and perhaps is even overemphasized just because so many innovations in technology and in design happen in athletic clothing. Uh, of course, I included the Levi's Miracle on Ice warm-up suits from the <laughs> 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, where the U.S. famously upset the Russian men's ice hockey team, which which wasn't even in the final. It was in the semifinal, but we all remember that as the, the great moment of those Olympics. Uh, but there's also a huge amount of women's tennis clothing in this book, and that's not an accident. Uh, tennis was one of the first professional sports open to women, and the tennis court was where a lot of the fashion debates and innovation of the past century have played out. There's also a lot of sneakers. Uh, 
in the book, worn by athletes uh, mainly, but I'm a huge vintage sneakerhead and it's something that fashion is still obsessed with today. So of course that had to be in the book. Yeah, and something that fashion and people have also been obsessed with for centuries is the clothing worn by royalty. So it should be no surprise how prominent a role this plays throughout the book. My favorite garment featured and discussed in the book is this incredible feathered cloak that was given to the English explorer James Cook by the Hawaiian high chief. And you'll have to excuse my pronunciation. Um, I think it's Kalani Opu on January 26, 1779. Kimberly, can you please tell us about what made this cloak so special? Well, this is uh, one of those wonderful Hawaiian feathered cloaks made from the feathers of tens of thousands of birds. Uh, they didn't actually kill the birds. They just took a few feathers from each. So you had to have a lot of birds. You had to have a lot of land and you had to have a lot of time and labor to make these. They were an extremely prestigious status symbol. Several of them do survive. I mean, it, this isn't a unique piece, but it is unique in that we know the date it was worn because it was given to Captain Cook uh, when he arrived in Hawaii on his explorations. And there there are eyewitness accounts of how this exchange went down. Uh, Captain Cook, in return, gave the Hawaiian king a linen shirt and his sword hanger, which, which seems a very unfair trade for not just this cloak, but five or six other amazing cloaks that he was given at the same time. Um, unfortunately, within three weeks, Captain Cook was dead. His his beautiful relationship with the Hawaiian natives soured very quickly, and, and he was killed uh, by them. So he didn't get to enjoy this beautiful cloak very long, but, but luckily it has survived um, and is still around today. It's in a uh, collection in New Zealand. Um, so I was very, very excited to get to include one of these that actually had a date in it, on it. There, there, there are a lot of things I would have liked to put in the book that I couldn't just because I couldn't find one that was specifically dated. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but in this case, I got lucky. Uh, yeah, and like you said, there's a beautiful picture of it in the book, so uh, dress listeners can check that out. Another favorite story I have is about how the Knights of the Garter came to be, and I actually never realized how literal that name actually was. I mean, when you think about it, it's like, okay, yes, they were wearing garters. But um, yeah, I never considered it. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, the, the Order of the Garter is England's oldest and most prestigious order of chivalry. And it all began with a wardrobe malfunction, allegedly, uh, when a, a woman of the court was dancing at a court ball and her garter fell off her leg and fell on the floor. And the king, Edward III, picked it up and gave it back to her. And as the story goes, and of course, you know, like many historical stories, we have to take this with a grain of salt, but some people who were seeing this made body jokes about this. Like, oh, you've got a garter. What does that mean? And the king's response to this was, Oniswa Kimali Pons, which is Latin for shame on him who thinks evil of it. Um, basically, you know, get your dirty minds out of the gutter. And that today is the motto of the Order of the Garter. <laughs> uh, and Knights of the Garter, who now include women, still wear uh, garters as part of their regalia. At, at the time this event allegedly happened, garters were unisex objects. They were not lingerie. They were not, there was no sexual uh, uh, meaning attached to them, apart from the fact that they were something you would not normally see on a woman. And if it fell off, then obviously that, that was a bit risque. 
the garter that I included in the book, because we don't know when when Edward III first picked up this garter in the 14th century, uh, is one that was given by Queen Victoria to her future husband, Prince Albert, on February 8th, 1840. Uh, he was made a Knight of the Order of the Garter shortly before their wedding, and she gave him a velvet garter with its edges and its buckle and its motto, outlined in diamonds. So it was a, a very expensive, very beautiful piece. And it actually does survive. I, I wasn't able to include it in the book because I just had too many pictures. But if you go to the Royal Collection website, you can look at it. And it's it's pretty blingy and, and very special. <laughs> and it, he uh, wore it for the garter ceremony. He wore it on his wedding day and he, he wore it many times afterwards until his premature death in 1861. Yeah, and it might go without saying, but just to clarify, you know, garters, of course, were worn as like a practical accessory before the, um, you know, days of pantyhose. So when when people just wore those individual hose to hold their stockings up, so right, it was it was a utilitarian piece, but it was not something uh, on a woman that you you would see normally. Exactly. So it's not surprising, perhaps, that haute couture fashion makes more than a few appearances throughout this book. Charles Frederick Worth, Paul Poiret, but my favorite date by far has to be October 2nd, 1969. I had no idea about this. Can you please tell us about this extraordinary relationship that came to be between uh, the French haute couturier Pierre Balmain and Queen Sirikit of Thailand? Yes, and I have to say the only reason I know about this story is because of the wonderful work of my friends and colleagues, Melissa Leventon and Dale Gluckman, who for the past decade or so have been working with the Thai royal family to curate and open the Queen Circuit Museum of Textiles in Bangkok, uh, where you can see this dress and others from her amazing wardrobe. She was uh, one of the best, best dressed women in the world in her time, largely thanks to her close relationship with Pierre Balmain. He met her, though, quite by accident. He was coming back to Paris from a trip to Australia and had a layover in Bangkok. And uh, he, he knew someone in Bangkok who took him to a party where he met a minor member of the Thai royal family. And by the time he got back to Paris, uh, there was a letter from the Queen's uh, secretary saying, the Queen is going on a Western tour for six months and she needs a wardrobe. Can you provide it? And this, this happened a bit earlier than, than the dress in the book. Um, they they had a six-month tour of American Europe and it was really the, the King and Queen's introduction to the West and the West's introduction to them. So she had to have a European-style wardrobe. But at the same time, she wanted to show off Thai silks and, and, and Thai craftsmanship. So Balmain designed this wonderful, wonderful uh, hybrid wardrobe from the underwear to the furs and the hats. And he even had to get her Vuitton luggage made to carry it all. And this is what she wore for six months as she went around to Europe and America. There's a photo of her with Elvis here in LA. That's just wonderful. Uh, but the the partnership continued. And the dress that I've used is a another hybrid garment because the Thai court didn't have a court dress at that point, uh, the Queen decided to invent one from scratch with Balmain's help. And she designed, I believe it was eight uh, different forms of court dress of varying levels of formality for different people in the court. And this this is one of them. And this is a gown that she wore to the National Theater in Bangkok on October 2nd, 1969, called a Thai Chakri. And it's, it's a wonderful hybrid of kind of 1969 haute couture and Thai tradition and Thai textiles. And this this was actually a rewear. This wasn't the first time she'd worn it, you know, just like 
the Duchess of Cambridge. She she wore her evening gowns a few times. So so I had a couple of different dates to pick from and I could I could kind of pick my favorite dress of her her wonderful wardrobe. That's a little refreshing to hear that these <laughs> these incredible garments uh you know went out on more than one occasion. <laughs> yeah, this this one I think she wore three times. <laughs> so it must have been a favorite. <laughs> yeah. Um what I really love about this book as well is its breadth of time and space. For instance, on July 19th, 1947, we read about how World War II era brides wore wedding gowns made from white silk parachutes. And the next day we've traveled to July 20th, 1969, so 22 years into the future, and we are learning about Neil Armstrong's space suit. Surprisingly, however, women's wear, or underwear, I should say, has more in common with Neil's spacesuit than meets the eye. I have two words for you, Playtex and spacesuit. <laughs> Can you please explain this? <laughs> well, this, this is a story that's been, been told before, but I was especially excited to include it in the book because this is coming out, of course, the year of the 50th anniversary of Neil Armstrong's spacewalk on July 20th, 1969. Uh, he described this suit, the A7L spacesuit, as the most widely photographed spacecraft in history. And we really do have to think of it as a miniature spacecraft rather than a suit uh, because it had all of the mobility and life support needs that that implies. Yet, it was largely made from materials that could be found in any woman's lingerie drawer at the time, you know, nylon, lycra, neoprene, dacron, with a couple of other very high-tech materials like mylar and teflon added to withstand the extreme temperatures and the radiation and the micrometeorites that he had to deal with on the moon. The spacesuit was constructed by seamstresses co-opted from the Playtex bra and girdle assembly line. Of course, Playtex was a subsidiary of the International Latex Corporation, which was a very high-tech, you know, chemical and industrial manufacturer corporation. But they needed the seamstresses uh, who had the bra and girdle experience because the suit had to be really strong, obviously, but also really comfortable and easy to move in. They, they had to use the same sort of machines and the same sort of uh, girdle dipping techniques to produce those latex joints and, and to, to make all of these 64 stitches to the inch um, seams fit the, I think it was 23 layers of fabric. Wow. <laughs> it was a, a very lightweight and, and uh, flexible yet extremely thick, uh, 20, 21 layers of fabric. And of course, we all know how influential the space suit was uh, on, on high fashion in, in this space age sort of sci-fi era, as well as how important it was to the success of the spacewalk. Oh, yeah. And, and just such a cool story behind its construction that I never would have known about. So thank you. Clothing can really be this reflection of any number of things. A woman's fashion sense, of course, her social status, sure. But what about her heroism, her bravery? I love how many stories of brave women factor into your book. You have Joan of Arc, you have Malala. Inspiring women are really front and center in so many stories. How does their clothing speak to their significance? Well, many of these women that you've mentioned have been clothing innovators just because 
they they had to have the right clothes for the job that they wanted to do, and they did not exist. Um, Amelia Earhart is a great example. She's in the book, and she began her flying career wearing men's flight suits because there just weren't any made for women. Uh, but by the time she finished her career, she had introduced flight apparel for women that she designed, as well as fashionable dress. She had a line of clothing called Amelia Fashions. And these were not made for flying, but they were wrinkle-proof dresses and things designed for active women. Um, but they, they also included things like parachute silk and the fabric that was uh, used to coat airplane wings. So she she really was an entrepreneur in fashion as well as was amazing adventurer. Uh, and that story is told many times throughout the book of women who became fashion innovators because they had to uh, and because they they loved fashion, but they also you know had specific needs that were not being met. There's, she's not even the only female um, aviator in the book. Right. And I think you have a story about an Olympian swimmer too, right? That was kind of banned from wearing her body revealing swimsuit um, or whatnot, I think in the 1930s. Yeah, the first racerback Speedo swimsuit was was uh, originally banned from the Olympics and she appealed it and, and she was okay, but it was considered too racy because you could see her shoulder blades. <laughs> And, you know, I must say that for every fun fact or event featured in this book, there is a story that is devastating or just downright horrific. I had no idea, for instance, that a then seven-year-old Issa Miyake survived the bombing in Hiroshima during World War II. It's not something he understandably ever talks about, um, especially since his mother died of exposure to radiation after the event. Also featured in this book are the remnants of the school uniform worn by a 13-year-old girl named Nobuko Oshida. She was a freshman at first Hiroshima Prefectural School. Um, Nobuko died along with tens of thousands of others when the U.S. dropped the atomic bomb on the city on August 6, 1945. Can you tell us more about Nobuko and why it was important to you to include these types of stories and garments? Yeah, Nobuka is represented in the book by her school uniform, uh, which she made herself in her home at class and what she was wearing uh, when the nuclear bomb was dropped. Not only does her school uniform survive, but her diary survives. And like the diary of Anne Frank, it gives us a 13-year-old girl's perspective on the events of World War II. And it's it's harrowing reading, but uh, just an amazing artifact to have as I was writing this. She was uh, with her schoolmates uh, clearing out a bombed building site uh, that morning, just half a mile from Ground Zero. And she actually survived the initial blast miraculously. And with the help of rescue workers, she got home to her family where she died later that night. And her family and the Hiroshima Peace Museum have preserved her school uniform as, as a memorial to her. And it's recognizable as a Japanese sailor-style school uniform, um, yet it's also horribly damaged and mangled. And just, uh, it's probably my favorite piece in the entire book because it, it speaks so eloquently to the the horrors that that she experienced, and and is such a um, it's a, a, a point of survival. But I, I do think this book should come with a trigger warning. It is not all pretty party dresses at all. And I do sometimes get pushback for that on my Twitter feed when I post something that is 
maybe hard hard to look at, hard to read about, but these are all um, part of the same history. These are all telling the same stories, and I think we need to look at the the bloody and the bullet ridden clothing, uh, the accidental survivals as much as the coronation gowns and the wedding dresses and the party clothes that have been preserved for their their beauty and for their value. Right. And to do otherwise would be to be, you know, incredibly deceptive, right? I mean, we talk about on Undressed all the time about fashion history is about more than pretty clothes. You know, clothing is is so much more than even mere aesthetics. Um, you know, it really speaks to the very heart of who we all are. And um, these these kind of stories and these types of relics really speak to that more than perhaps anything. Kimberly, thank you so much for being here. Um, I can't let you go, however, without <laughs> asking you one more time if you have any other stories that we perhaps have not, uh, you know, gotten to today that um, can help to further entice people to kind of pick up your book. Are there any other events that you would like to share? Well, I don't want to end on the saddest piece in the book, so I'll I'll just compare it with another one that that's maybe not happy, but it is a story of survival, and it's very closely related to um, Nobuko's um, school uniform because it was worn at Pearl Harbor um, on December seventh, nineteen forty-one, a date that will a date which will live in infamy, as President Roosevelt said. And uh, it's it's a watch. It's a fairly ordinary men's um, gold watch. Nothing particularly valuable or special about it, and it doesn't even work. It has stopped at eight o four a.m., which is the very minute that the uh, Roy Boreen, the sailor who was wearing it, uh, jumped off of the USS Oklahoma as it exploded, and he he survived. He he had to tread water for a long time as sort of bombs fell around him and and um, you know oil burned on the surface but he managed to get out of Pearl Harbor get onto another ship some sailors gave him some coffee and some dry clothes and he that's when he looked at his watch and he realized that that it had stopped. Uh, he kept that watch till he died and uh, and it was donated to the World War II Museum in New Orleans and it's the one piece in the book that um, we cannot just put a date to, but uh, a minute. Wow, that is incredible. Kimberly, thank you so much for being here. Dress listeners, I don't think you need reminding that this is an incredible book that you will certainly go out and get. It's so cool. I uh, I think I'm going to be using it on a daily basis to see what happened in dress history. Kimberly, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Cass. My pleasure. This book is chock full of fascinating dress and fashion history events. And you ladies, Cass, only touched on a few. So, of course, we encourage all of our listeners to go out and get the book. And you can also follow along on social media because there's a website, which is wornonthisday.com, as well as at wornonthisday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's such a great book and one, like we've already said, is truly our new almanac. The new question for people who step foot in my house is going to be, did you know what happened in dress history on your date of birth? So April, for instance, uh, your birthday is September 24th, and we are going to head all the way back to 1854 when Kimberly writes about Queen Victoria. So Queen Victoria was caught in a pelting Scottish shower while riding to church at Balmoreau in an open carriage. The queen said she knew the rain came out of spite because she had on a new bonnet, a very pretty white silk capote with feathers. And this was recorded by Eleanor Stanley, who's one of her ladies in waiting. And she goes on to say, 
We all agreed most cordially with H.M., Her Majesty, that it did always rain when one was smart. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's sweet. What about yours? What's, what happened on your birthday? I was actually quite thrilled to read on my birthday, June 30th in 1927, a certain Elizabeth Lehman wore a peach gown with blue streamers for her debutante ball. Her sister Grace wore an identical gown in opposite colors. And April, guess who that gown was by? Any guesses? Um, let's see, 1929, 1927, is that what you said? Yeah. Paul Paré, which would be the, <laughs> the tail end of his fashion career, <laughs> right. I should point out. Very um, good guess because he's one of my favorite designers, but... Lava? Yep, Robe de Steels by Lon Van, <laughs> Jean Lanvin. So uh, one of the dresses survives in the Cincinnati Art Museum. So such a fantastic book. And that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider what might have happened in fashion history on your birthday next time you get dressed. Remember to tune in this Thursday for our latest edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we address listener questions. We love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us with a question, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And you can also direct messages on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you find images accompanying each week's episode. At dress underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. For additional readings from each week's episode, check out our show notes at dresspodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.